Hey homegirls, welcome to another episode of Home Going. I know it's been a minute, but I was stuck under a rock, buried in schoolwork and work in general, and an illness, and a loss. So I've been dealing with a lot, but I'm back and I'm ready to get this show back on the road. This episode is going to be on my experience moving to America. So let's get started. I moved here in 2017, the summer of 2017. I always tell people I moved here on a whim. So I used to come to America periodically during summer, especially to visit. And I'd stay for about a month and go back to be it school or I'd go back home to Kenya. And so um, I thought this was going to be that experience. So I moved here with a suitcase uh, full of summer clothes, tank tops, dresses, skirts, shorts, slippers. You can imagine. And I was like, I'm going to be here for a month and that's it. I'm going to go back and, you know, get on with my life. And then halfway through my holiday, my parents were uh, of the opinion that I should stay and look at my career prospects here. So that just sort of threw my world up in the air because I was not prepared for that. And I had to figure out, okay, I have to start applying for uh, jobs. I have to look presentable when I go for my interviews, meaning I have to do a whole wardrobe haul, right? I have to get used to the fact that I'm going to be here with one suitcase with my clothes and not know, I didn't know what my life was going to look like in the coming months. So safe to say, after that whole realization of how my life was going to change, I hated America. I just didn't like being here. So every time I'd speak to people, they'd always tell me how I should be so happy and grateful that I'm in the best city in the world. And I'm spoiled for choice with things to do and people to meet. But I was in New York City and I was I didn't like it at all. I didn't like America in general, like the entire country. I didn't like the people. I didn't like the culture. I did not like anything. I didn't like the food even. And I'll speak about that a bit later. But yeah, I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be in this country. Didn't want to meet meet new people. Didn't want to make new friends. I just did not want to be here. So I had a whole year and a half of hating being here. And I could say that now looking back, I could say maybe I started liking this country around 2019 towards the end is when I sort of came to terms with the fact that my life was here now. And if I wanted to enjoy my life and live my life fully, I'd have to come to a point where I have to embrace where I'm at and I have to start to love it. So I actively started to seek activities, seek people, seek friendships that would make me grow in love with this city and this country in general. Um, first things first, what made me hate New York? It was a number of factors, but it's off the top of my head. First of all, $150 or $250 to braid my hair. <laughs> Even in London, I didn't pay that much. So it was just the craziest price ever. And you know what's funny is I used to go to this spot in Harlem to try and braid my hair. And the person who, the people the people I'd meet there, the, the hair braiders, they were predominantly African women, right? And bargaining with them was so hard. In fact, more often than not, the times when I was able to bargain with them and get a price that was agreeable to me to some extent, was when I'd throw in my my African card. I'd be like, you know, but I'm also African. I'm like your daughter. And that's when they'd, you know, take $30 or $40 off the, the price we'd started off with. But yeah, hated that. Hated that so much to the point where I just, nowadays I've become so good at doing my own hair. I don't braid my hair at these salons. I just buy my hair, my hair extensions, or if I'm doing my hair natural, if I'm doing my, I just do my own hair. And so I don't have a hair expense on my budget anymore. I just do my own hair. 
Another thing I hated was the catcalling from men. Now, in I've been catcalled in every continent I've lived on. You know, I've been catcalled even in Kenya, but the catcalling in New York was so different, so loud, so in your face that I, to date, I don't like getting catcalled in New York. I, it just irks me. And so, then you know, you'd be walking down the street, you have your earphones on, you could be wearing freaking pajamas, you could be wearing a sweatshirt and a, uh, and sweatpants and looking a hot mess. You could look like you, you just got out of a garbage pile and someone will still catcall you. So you're walking down the street and someone would be like, uh, oh, damn, Beyonce, Beyonce, dang, let me highlight you one second. Can I talk to you for a minute? Or just, just all sorts of crazy things. Let me buy you food. I want to come home and cook for you. Just all sorts of crazy. And then if you don't respond, it's a problem. But And then sometimes it could get to a point where sometimes it's just so funny. The things they say are so funny. So of course, at some point, you're really struggling to keep a straight face. But of course, you could crack a smile here and there or chuckle. And they'll be like, damn, see, I knew you like that. And it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's just, to date, I just, <laughs> I still don't like it though. It's just, no. Another thing that I did not know until I moved here and had to get my life together was the apartment search and the things that you require to secure housing in this country. Now I understand why they have a whole homelessness epidemic and they have all these people on the streets. And is this and I was speaking to a friend early on when I when I had first sort of moved here and we were, I think we were both in the same space of I guess looking for apartments and, and things like that so we were talking and she made a very interesting comment she was like this is the one place where just one single incident could mean you're homeless just one single incident so you could be working on Wall Street you could be on six figures so one incident could be, for instance, let's say losing your job and that's it. You're homeless. And it's so crazy to me that that could be your story in this country. And so it also just highlights the need for you to to be smart about your finances, to be solid about where your money is going into and how you're investing it. And just making sure that even as you're going about life in this fast paced city, you have a game plan that entails you not being on the streets in two months if you lose your job or something of the sort happens. It could, you know, even just a, a death. I know a colleague who had a death of a parent and we were speaking one day and she mentioned to me how it's been really tough for her financially because funerals are so expensive here and she has kids, she has family she's taking care of and then she lost a parent and then she had to bury this parent at the height of the pandemic and her finances are a mess up until today. So she's just going about life, paying back all these loans or paying back all these credit card bills, you know, just as a result of one death in the family, one death. So again, back to the, the, the point I was making where just one single incident could change your life in this country. But I'm gonna just move on to the fact that when I moved here, I was at my best physically. So in the UK, when I was in school, I had, you know, a culture of going to gym every day. But I also was drinking and partying and eating what I wanted every single day as well. I was having my my best uni life. So I moved here and I sort of kept the same eating habits. I didn't drink as much when I moved here, but I still kept the same eating habits. And I had a drink once or twice a week, right? And I, I wasn't partying as, as hard as I was partying in the UK. But... Within the first four or five months of me being in this country, the weight gain was astronomical. I weighed myself one day and I was shocked. 
I was so shocked. I almost starved myself for a week. I literally checked myself into a gym and got a trainer. I was like, I'm getting a personal trainer. I can't be looking like this. And I've had such an interesting journey with my weight. So my weight fluctuates. So if I'm going through a rough time or if it's because I get seasonal down. So if it's cold, I'm a bit, you know, my, my moods are a bit off. And then that's when I also eat because I stress eat a lot. So you can imagine how you'd see me a month from now and I could look different and you could see me three months from then and I could be a different person. And it's it's just, I just don't have a constant weight, but now I've learned to embrace that. So I used to get to this point where I do these, these yo-yo diets this, and then I'd, it, that just results in you binge eating whenever you get the chance to eat what you want. And now I'm just, you know, I, I have things that I eat, things that I don't eat. But if I have a craving, I'm going to eat what I want to eat. And that's just how I do it. Yeah, that's how I keep it moving. And so that happened, weight gain happened. And then the next big thing, I moved into my own apartment. Finally, after getting, you know, because you have, when you're doing the apartment search, you have to do, you have to get, you have to show your credit score. You have to have a social security number. They have to do a background check for your criminal records or any whether you rented in the past. Some apartments won't even take you if you have no rental history. So can you imagine, it could be so tough as someone like me who moved to this country, who had only had a, uh, I'd only ever lived on, you know, as a student elsewhere. I did not have a credit card. I got my first credit card when I was in America. I did not have a social security number. I had to do that. And my some apartments that I had viewed were very iffy about, you know, letting me become a tenant because I didn't have a, um, a rental history. And so it just highlighted to me how, you know, we say this, it sounds so easy to tell someone, well, just save and get an apartment. Well, why don't you just do this? But there's structural um, issues when it comes to the rental space in this country, and I can understand, I'm more cognizant of these issues and I'm more understanding, I'm more empathetic to someone who's on the streets because I realize that it could be it could be something as easy or as simple as you getting uh, evicted. Then now you have an eviction record on your, on your background check and now no one wants to rent to you because you got evicted uh, six months ago and eviction records stay on your, on your, on your background check history for seven years. So you can imagine for a good seven years, you may not be able to get an apartment unless you're renting directly from an owner who you have to, again, get their trust. So it's a whole plethora of issues when it comes to just the rental, um, just how to get a, a, a rental apartment in this country. Um, so yeah, I moved into my apartment and I was like, yes, 22, own apartment, love the city I'm in now, starting to get new friends, starting to get new activities I'm doing. And then... You settle in and you think this is where, you know, you're thinking this is it. I'm an adult now. I'm adulting in, in every sense of the word. And then depression hits you and then you find yourself in therapy. And I, I remember in my first session telling my therapist, I don't even know why I'm here. I'm here because I keep having breakdowns and I'm at this point in my life where I should be happy. I should be settled. I should be, you know, just in love with my my 20 year old life in an, in a in a nice city and enjoying it immensely but I'm not I'm not happy and and I, and I was telling my therapist I'm the problem because I'm not grateful for where I'm at in life and she really really pushed me to restructure that thought because she was like this is not unheard of for someone to finally settle in especially given the fact that my background had always been you know my life had always been very fast-paced and my transitions were very quick like I finish high school go straight to uni straight after uni 
got an internship at a, at a courthouse. Straight after that, moved to a different country. Straight after that, got my job. So I never had a point in life where I sat down for two, three months and didn't have anything I was working towards. I was just now following a routine. That was the first time I ever had that, where I just had to wake up, go to work, come back home, get my exercise in and and sleep and do it again. So this space or this daily routine now allows your real issues to come to the surface and it also forces you to start to deal with them. So because I'd I'd lived such a fast-paced life, I'd never had the chance of dealing with things that I didn't even realize that I had pushed to the back burner of my head. And so now I was in therapy, unpacking these things at 22. But it was great, got over it. And then now... I've reached a point where I like I like where I am. I love where I'm at now. I love how my life looks. I love that I have a routine. I love that I have these amazing friends, amazing connections, amazing experiences I've had in this city. And I think I'm going to start by saying that it's so easy to make friends in this city, this, especially in this day of, of social media and events and restaurants and, and, and people having similar interests. It's so easy to make friends in a city that's so pulsing. So if you like restaurants, you could um, make sure you eat at a different restaurant every week. If I join a book club, I'm in a book club. I have my book club every every Monday. And then on Thursday, I have my script writing class. And then on the weekends, I do brunch and I've just made friends off of that. There's apps to make friends that you could just put the location and you could put your interests in and people will just talk to you and you'd meet for a coffee and bam, you have your friends. But one thing I'd love to highlight about this city that I sort of just came at me that I, in a way that I didn't expect was the dating culture here. It's so different to date in this country, I'll say. But I've literally had the worst dates here. The the worst. I've had my fair share of the worst dates in my life history here, literally. So I once went on this date with a guy and he chose a restaurant. He chose a restaurant that was in uh, midtown Manhattan. It was a weekday, so I was like, great, not too far from work. This is perfect. I could just be in and out and, you know, go home at whatever point. When he showed up, he leaned in for a hug and I kid you not I was I'm sure that he was suffering from undiagnosed halitosis because the way his breath smelt it was like cow poop or as if a rat had died in his mouth and I really tried to shake that disgust but each time he leaned across the table to talk to me I just I was just mad as hell I was like why is this why is he just opening his mouth so close to me like this? I was suffering on this date. I was, you know, sticking my fork in my food, just mad as hell that he had such bad breath. I'm like, how are you in a full on suit and your breath smells like this? Like how? Then on the date, he goes on to... So a, a bit of background. All these dates, I'm, all these experiences I'm giving to you in terms of the dating have been with people who it wasn't like a first date experience i'd been on a couple of dates with them so i had not seen any red flags until this particular date that i'm telling you about so anyway so on this date he goes on to say how he has a daughter so this is about like a, i think it was our third fourth date and i'm like this are things you say on the first date anyway he says how he has a daughter and that you know 
And I'll quote what he said. He's like, oh, I'm sure you wouldn't mind if we were to move in together since you're looking for an apartment and she can come over on the weekends and we could do stuff together. And he just kept going on and on about all these activities we could do and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just sitting there in shock. Like, wait, sir, I did not sign up to be a 22, 23-year-old stepmom. I did not sign up to... How are you trying to move yourself into my apartment? Like, I just... And it was just, I don't know, I don't know if that's part of like American culture that people just move in together like that. But I was just like, no, 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 X, I'm out. It's been real. But my worst date in New York will definitely have to go to the guy who for weeks just kept saying he wanted to go to this. uh, It's a build your own burger spot that's in Times Square or near Times Square. Not too sure where exactly. But so anyway, he finally makes a reservation for this, this, this spot for a Sunday night and we get there around eight-ish, order drinks, then we order our food. And before I ordered, I'd scanned the room and I was looking at the size of these burgers and the portion of the food. And and so, first of all, let me digress here and say, <laughs> Americans, I don't know what the obsession is with Americans and large, extra large portions. I swear these people eat like healthcare is free in this country. And no wonder they have an obesity issue because... The way they eat is insane. But anyway, back to what I was what I was saying. So we, we order the our food. So I order a beef burger. I think I get bacon and, and an avocado or something and sweet and sweet potato fries. And then he orders a burger with bacon, onion rings, avocado, chicken tenders, cheese, and a side of mac and cheese, and a side of fries, and a large soda. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> he must be really hungry or I don't know, or he hasn't eaten all day. So I was like, okay, cool. I guess he's hungry. And also I was like, well, you know, guys eat more. So it's fine. It's whatever. Then we have another round of drinks. And the date was actually going well. Like we were talking, catching up on on our lives the past week. Blah, 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 da, 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 da. Then the bill comes. This man opens the bill and scrunches his face. And I'm like, oh, hell no. And then he tells me how he hadn't budgeted for this, for it to be this much and how he doesn't have enough to pay for the meal. And I'm like, okay, to avoid embarrassment, I'm putting my card down. So the bill was like about $120. So I put my card down. I paid for it. Cool. But he sure as hell did not hear from me again. Like, what kind of embarrassment is that? Please, like, you're not going to hear from me again. Like, I'm dead to you now for sure. Um, yeah, so those are my dating experiences, just the two that I'll highlight because those were just the craziest. But also when you the good thing about going through such bad experiences, again, you raise your standards even more and you you really you really, really ensure that before you're even going on the th- second, third, even first date with someone, you've sort of sifted them out for any potential uh red flags or just weird behavior. Um what I do love about New York is the thriving black culture scene and how that contributes to just how fun the city is so whether you're in harlem or brooklyn or even manhattan you're just spoiled for choice with music venues restaurants events galleries and my first experience in this whole black culture scene was in harlem and this place this place was called a shrine that i don't know how to describe this place but it's just it's it's i think i'd say it's a music venue or a live music venue with um, two levels. So the upper level has a live band playing every day, different live bands. And I went on a Saturday night and the live band was made up of Ethiopians in the diaspora 
and they played reggae music. And then at around 8, 8.30 or 9, maybe 10 o'clock, I'd say, the basement opens up and they have a DJ and then it's full on Afro beats up until 4 a.m. So you're just there, shaku shaku, you know, until 4 a.m. What I love about this place is that it's a hole in the wall type of place. So it's a hidden gem that you wouldn't know until like you're in it. And it's really relaxed in, t- in terms of the dress code. I had jeans and I think uh, boots and a, and, a, and a leather jacket. People were in there with casual sportswear. So it was, it's, you really get to enjoy the experience, the food and just the blackness of it all. You, every corner of the room was just filled with black people and you're there till 4 a.m. It's, it was one of the greatest nights I've ever had in the city, to be honest. And then another thing I noticed is that now being African is really cool. It's really cool. Now when you mention your African people, people are like, oh my God, you're African. This is so cool. And so there's a lot of African an injection of Africanness in New York that's just at a, at a, at an all-time high. So we have a plethora of fine dining African restaurants with with great ambiences. You know, Lagos NYC, which serves Nigerian food. We have Amarachi in Brooklyn, which also serves Nigerian food. And then there's a spot called Brooklyn Suya that's just absolutely amazing. You could stuff your face with Suya every day. Um, and the thing about these restaurants is that they offer a different feel you know, in regards to what we were used to seeing African restaurants look like. So two, three years back when I came, African restaurants were sort of these dingy spots where you just have to order your food and go home and eat at the comfort of, in, of your home because you'd not, you don't want to eat there. But now you go to Lagos NYC and it's, and it's, it's, the table is laid out and it's fine. It's almost like what I'd call a fine dining African experience. And the food is great and it's clean and there's, there's dancers and there's music. And so it makes you really want to stay there and eat there in that ambience. Um, and I can't finish this podcast. I think this may be my last um, sort of segue to end this, but I want to talk a bit about the lockdown in 2020 and what how that was for me and how that changed my experience of this country yet again. So I just settled into my routine. I just settled into, you know, I've made all these friends. I now have a calendar that I that is now fully booked all week because I have things I'm doing constantly and I was happy. And then the pandemic hits and now we're stuck at home. Now you can't go to the gym. Now you can't eat at restaurants. Now you can't spend eight hours in your office. And you're just stuck at home and you have to figure out how you're going to ensure that you still have a social life despite being stuck inside your apartment. So I started doing this 10K step thing where you make sure every day you walk 10,000 steps. And I got this idea off of Lydia Denga, who I follow on YouTube. And I was just like, this is great. She looked like she lost a lot of weight. And it's it was working well for me because I couldn't go to the gym, but I was still getting my exercise in. Then I started cooking a lot and then I had my hand at trying these these companies like HelloFresh and Blue Apron where they they you know they you'd order a box of food and then you they'd have a a curated menu for you or a curated recipe for you and you'd follow it and then you'd you'd have a meal that's restaurant styled but in your you make it at the comfort of your home. So I did that a lot. Then I started discovering hidden talents like I joined this uh video production uh, masterclass that was run by this film producer in the UK and now I learned how to record all these videos on my phone and I made a mini movie of 14 minutes and I submitted it and 
they we watched it all together and they were like this is great this is amazing and now i could literally shoot a movie on my iphone and i joined a script writing class and every week you get a chance to sort of you know um read your knit bits of your script out to people who work with abc or netflix and hopefully one day it sticks and bam you're going to become a whole uh produ- you're going to be in the television world basically as a writer uh but again I will not talk about the lockdown without mentioning I guess what was everyone's highlight of 2020 which was the death of George Floyd uh, at the hands of a cop and what this showed how this played out and what this taught us as black people the world over and I'd say first of all being in America when this happened was just gave me an interesting angle to all this um It was first of all the saddest experience I've ever seen, but again I would like to mention that it also highlighted the power of social media as a tool to engage the masses and so this started off with, you know, someone who just picked up their phone as this was happening and recorded it and put it on social media and now we have people in Australia, in Asia, in 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 Russia looking at this and 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 they and they're saddened by it and they're disturbed by the atrocities but social media sensationalized this issue in the beginning which was great because it also resulted in justice being uh, gotten for the for this family that lost their son but at the same time i was surprised with how quickly this issue died down it was it was almost as if we talked about it so much we were angry we shared posts we got on twitter we came strongly against this this killing of black people by cops and then as soon as that was dealt with or that was over let me just say uh, let me say as soon as it's the time frame for that issue was done we forgot about it and when the verdict came i was really saddened to see just lack of engagement with the fact that this verdict has come out and he's been found guilty and there of course there are people who are celebrating and 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 what not but there was just very little engagement on how this this is a full circle moment we fought this we fought for this and we got the justice the family got the justice but um we, we just we, i just feel like it's it's just goes again to show how social media works two weeks you're the trending topic and then after that you just, every year a forgotten name and this is the same thing with the, with Haiti when every time Haiti there's an earthquake and or if we talk about um Afghanistan and all these issues and i again i'm going to just put it out there that i also have an issue with how these things are shared and how people come out strongly and and put this on their stories and and they're doing all this social media activism but i also feel like social media is also a big contributor to mental health and you just never know who's seeing your posts so whenever i see i just personally refrain from sharing anything that could be a potential trigger to someone else knowingly or unknowingly so for instance how people were sharing the whole afghanistan thing or people sharing the devastation of the earthquakes in Haiti there could as well be someone who's here and is unable to help someone they know in Haiti or their family stuck in, in in Haiti as at the height of this earthquake and you're sharing these posts you're sharing these pictures you're sharing these videos and they're opening their social media and you're not the only one sharing it so they're opening social media and as they go through each post as they scroll, 
everything they're just seeing is, is 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 a trigger and and for me that's just how i view it and that's why i refrain i made a personal decision to refrain from sharing anything unless it's actually information because you have to question yourself and ask yourself what is the purpose of you sharing this what is the impact you're making is there something you could do on the ground or even from the comfort of your couch with the with with the because we're we're spoiled for choice in terms of you know you got you get on google you look up things you get on twitter you search things there's ways you could assist even though you're not in that in that more in that place at that moment there's other ways you could do it without posting it on social media and that's just my standpoint on that issue and that's my standpoint on even the the recent issue of the asylum seekers stuck in texas or the or the texan border uh from haiti and how people for me what really stuck out for me especially was the fact that i went on i went on this whole um search search uh, race i guess at college just looking for all this info looking for all these resources all i was finding was people saying this is terrible this is bad this is a human right violation but i couldn't find not one up until yesterday's when i found one Haitian American pro bono lawyer who's actually flying into Texas every week to to file for asylum uh applications for these people who are stuck at the border but i was really and i was finding all these people on social media sharing these things saying all these things but really no action and 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 now it really begs again the question of what is the impact of what you're sharing what is your purpose what is the end goal and that's just again food for thought for y'all but yeah that's the end of my podcast i know it was a bit long today but i just had all these thoughts that i thought i should put out there and share with you guys so let me know what you think uh you can hit me up on instagram the podcast also is going to have an instagram soon so you can engage with me on there and i'm going to see you on my next episode of Homegoing. Be well.